Welcome to We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. I'm Lauren Lee, and I'm all about building communities, celebrating unique journeys, and sharing stories about the paths people have taken to enter the tech industry. Join me as we explore the skills my guests have learned in their prior jobs, schooling, or life experiences, and how they apply them to their current roles in tech. All right, let's do this and dive in. Over the past 12 years, my guest today has worked at different agencies throughout Amsterdam as well as Paris. He's been lucky enough to have had global clients such as Nike, Heineken, Google, Tommy Hilfiger, EA Games, L'Oreal, Chanel, and Hermes, to name a few. And today, he's both the director of web development as well as the lead front-end developer at Valtech, a global digital agency where it's all about quality and building fancy websites. Now, a demanding job also requires balance. My guest plays guitar, enjoys speaking at conferences, as well as making YouTube videos. His name is Tim Bennix, and today's episode was super special as we recorded it live on Twitch. So be sure to follow me on Twitter at lolocoding, L-O-L-O-C-O-D-I-N-G, to learn about future live shows. It was really fun as the audience watching was able to participate and ask questions of Tim and participate in the dialogue. And as always, please be sure to subscribe to We Belong Here and all of your podcast players and rate and review. Okay, let's get on with the show and hear about Tim's unconventional path to tech. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And what an intro. Fancy stuff. You know, we're trying to be fancy here. Yeah, it's working. (laughs) We're just trying to make sure that the audience feels as though we know you a bit as we dive into your story. Exactly. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, cool. So can you tell me more about the experiences that you had before you entered the tech industry? Yes, sure. So I wasn't like one of those early starters with programming and coding and stuff like that. Um, I was always much more interested in making music and doing any sort of uh, creative stuff, basically. So I was on this journey to be a musician, basically. I was always doing that. That was like my passion. It was almost feels like speaking was harder than playing music for me. Wow. I see the guitar is behind you. Is that? Ah, yeah, exactly. For the people live, they can see it, not on the podcast, sadly. Just imagine some really cool guitars behind him. Imagine guitars on the wall. <laughs> yeah. So basically, for some reason, I don't exactly remember what happened, but I chose to go into nursing. Okay. Which is not very close to music, but I always was someone who was like has a lot of empathy and being very close with people and all on the human level, let's say. And mm-hmm. it just felt like kind of a really good plan B, to be honest, um, next to music. But for some reason, I made it my plan A and did music more on the side, more relaxed, shall we say. Yeah, that happened. And I actually enjoyed it for a pretty long time, but I did not finish uh, my university for it. I actually, we have four years. I was in Amsterdam and I did three and a half and I could have like actually finished, but I didn't because so close. Yes. You know what? I learned a lot from it for my later career, 
But during that time in the in the Netherlands, they actually switched healthcare systems. So they went from like super, super socialist style to more privatized, more the American style. And it's still kind of, it's not there yet, but that transition was really challenging. And I think from maybe the 200 people in my year, only 10 people are now a nurse. So that was a very challenging time for the industry and everybody was complaining. There was no possibility to be creative or to fix things or to actually be happy in that world. And then when I started to complain all the time myself, I realized this is not for me. I want to be able to do creative things, um, express myself, do things like that. And nursing is a demanding job, right? If you make a mistake, somebody can die. And it's like, I, I, I felt like I couldn't express myself. It was a really challenging time, actually. Sure. Sounds really difficult. So it sounds like you've experienced burnout really quickly and realized before the transition even happened from school to full-time career, you decided to make the switch. Yes. But it wasn't actually burnout as much. Luckily, I'm someone who always reflects a lot. And it took me some time because I had to grow up in this. And I did a lot of like on the the psychiatry side of things. And I think I was a little bit young to see the things I've seen. But it also taught me a lot, of course. And upon reflecting, I just realized I also had the feeling um, I kind of, okay, I started this thing, so I have to finish it. Yeah. Actually, as it turns out, when I realized, okay, it's not for me anymore, I just want to drop this and continue and think about other things. And actually, everybody around me was like, sure, if you feel like you want to do something else, just do it. And I didn't realize how much support I had. At the time when I started this university, I was also a little bit of like a geek, a little bit, like I was playing some games. I was changing configurations in games and seeing changes on the screen. And I loved that always. And at one point I figured out, why don't I try to make a website? Like super simple. And I've done a whole bunch of very bad work as we all have, right? And I'm a child of the 90s. So I came up with it and we all, we just had HTML and stuff like that. But I also at one point figured out, you know what, if I do this for friends and family, I can actually uh, make a bit of money. So I managed to pay part of the school money with that sort of almost freelancing, but not really because you're young, right? But that fueled the creative feeling. So I had this fallback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was an actually pretty easy fallback because right at that moment, I'm lucky with my age and the time of the internet, I think, because at that point I could work anywhere with the basic skill in front end. So you essentially, it sounds as though at that point you were teaching yourself that front end pieces and you were able to plug into roles and find a job doing that work. Yeah, so basically what what happened was I was seeing, um, you know, I was doing a bit of HTML and CSS and Flash. That was pretty big back then. And I was slowly starting getting into it. And then I thought, okay, I want to just next to my studies, make a little bit of money, like just next to work. Because what I used to start with was like every Saturday I worked in a music store, never made any money because I bought guitars in that same store. (laughs) And then... You have to pay rent. So yeah, I had to figure out a way to make just enough to pay that low rent of our first small apartment. And of course, my wife back then, my girlfriend helped me out with that. So I was really starting small. And then I just started to do like as a freelancer, I made a whole bunch of very bad work and it all worked out. (laughs) And over time I realized, okay, now I'm almost good enough. Now I'm just going to look for a job and quit that school and see where it ends up. Mm -hmm. I was really lucky to find a place that's called Mediamatic. It still exists now. This is years and years ago. But they had like an art 
part and they had like a laboratory mm -hmm. part. They called it Mediamatic Lab. That's what I work. And there we built oh. social networks before Facebook was there. Wow. And so we had all these challenges of, okay, I want to become this person's friend or I like this thing. We had to deal with that before Facebook. And we had like all these relational databases that were super slow. Well, nowadays everything scales. But back then we didn't know what a CDN was. Like we had just had a lot of servers in the basement. And so... <laughs> I knew nothing about web development, clearly. Um, when I actually did the job interview, I showed a website that I built and it was completely in tables with spacer GIFs and all of that. They saw potential, but they also saw that I wasn't ready for anything. Everybody has to start somewhere, right? And they just yeah. gave me a job. This company was actually so far ahead of its time, but they weren't managed the best. So it was never really making a lot of money. But I got to make social networks before social networks were a thing. And we did like a lot of art websites. And we also built the first version of OAuth in Amsterdam at that point. And it was my colleague who was from the US who actually came up with it. And because what we wanted to do is if you're part of this museum website with 4,000 people, and then there's a part, another website about stories about Amsterdam, those two you want to connect, but you don't want to have one big database because maybe one of them you could not touch because it's, let's say, oh yeah, what did we have? We have st had stuff like the Jewish monument of the people that passed away in the war. You're not going to touch that. This is like all their families, what they did, their birth certificates, all of that. That stuff but what we wanted was actually have people who are family members to come on and actually write stories about their history but we didn't want to destroy the original database modify the original data yeah sure exactly so we had to make sure that they could log in with their with one account on the other thing read it and then write comments and stuff like that so we're like okay but we don't want to give the password to the other website so what do you do and that's how OAuth started. And it was terrible what we did because we kept all the state of the logging in on the URL. So the URLs were like a thousand characters. It didn't work because we were trying to design how does it look when you log into one website with the other website? We didn't realize if one website is purple and the other is green, the login needs to be purple when you're logging into the green one, like Facebook mm -hmm. login nowadays, right? We didn't know, so nobody got it. And then OAuth version 2 came out because of Facebook, and it was awesome. So, But I'm kind of happy that I got the chance to work with people who had all these awesome visions like that. Yeah, and it sounds like you did a lot of on-the-job learning in that moment. Everything. Normally, I ask my next question is, was there a moment in which you decided to learn to code and how did you exactly do it? But it sounds like you've always been tinkering and so you slowly learned what you were interested in. And then when you had those jobs, you were teaching yourself what you needed to do to succeed in those. Yeah, it's kind of like that. So in the beginning, it was always like, I just want to see something on the screen. How do I do it? Sure. I use Flash or HTML or whatever. It doesn't really matter. I didn't know what was good. You just do something, which mm -hmm. is also free because you think outside of the box. And if you're smart, smarter than me, at that point, you would come up with something amazing. But back then, there wasn't that much technology to dabble in. So that didn't really happen. But mm -hmm. then once I started to do actual jobs, like at Mediamatic, for example, we had all these business cases. And I started to be so interested in, okay, if for this amount of time and for that amount of budget, and it was never much because imagine museums, they get government funding. So they have like, okay, there's 3K for you. Now build that amazing feature. Nowadays, we're like, okay, so that's one day. And back then, that's like, okay, three weeks, let's see what we can do. But so I was always 
learning to scratch an itch that I had, like I couldn't figure something out for a client or for a thing. And that's how you, how I learned. Of course, I was lucky to have their CTO was, was kind of my mentor. And this guy was the smartest I've ever encountered. He could actually compile C for any type of processor. It's one of, this was his background. Yeah. Like vacuum cleaner processors. He couldn't write a compiler for that. Crazy stuff. But now he built web. And he just made me think a bit outside of the box. And he taught me the things that I think still now I'm teaching the people in my teams. Things like images and media. That's the core of your of what you're showing to a client, right? Like if you want to buy something, you look at the picture first. Right. And I learned all of those kind of things. And also like what is performance and why does it have to be fast? And how does that work? And these guys back in like 2007, 8, they had that. They knew this. But then all the other agencies where I used to work didn't really care so much about this anymore because they just had to churn it out and do other things. Like tell the story, of course, but it's kind of fun that I was in a super advanced place. And then went to advertising agencies where it's all about like creating a poster that you show on the web with a fancy lady on it. (laughs) And so I've had to try to still learn from that, of course, and then try to move on and see what you can learn. And evolve. Absolutely. Well, bring us to today then. So can you tell me more about what you do as the director of web development at Valtech? Yeah, sure. So I started at Valtech, but let's, let's, we step back slightly. So I moved to Paris because of a job, because I, okay. I worked at QA, which is an ad agency. They said at one point, why don't you come to Paris? Because we need to start up, um, we need to do more technology there. So mm-hmm. Paris office was like 15 people, I think. And they only did storytelling videos, that's kind of stuff, but they needed more development. Oh. So I moved there and there was this ocean of opportunity because in Paris, technology was a bit behind and okay. Everybody needed it. So we could do whatever we wanted and we could tell Chanel, no, do it this way with a 3D video. And they actually wow. accepted. So I learned a lot. That's a very long-winded way of saying that at one point, this thing came on my path, Valtech. And it wasn't just Valtech, it was actually L'Oreal. So mm-hmm. for a lot of people, it's just L'Oreal Paris, which is one brand, right? It's like the night cream. Yeah. That's synonymous in my mind, yeah. Turns out L'Oreal is one of the biggest companies out there and they're buying brands. So they have like Garnier, they have Fichy, they have Diesel, they have... Oh, wow huge amounts of brands so they don't create brands they buy brands for the last 10 years they have been building up to okay we need to do e-commerce and every brand is on its own they're building their own website with their own local agencies so it was a pretty big mess that they wanted to try to orchestrate each of them had their own code base then they needed to somehow (laughs) and then some even had in spain different code base than in the u.s so basically what is the most successful thing about L'Oreal is also its downfall on the web because they are so successful because they are decentralized. What they do is if you want to sell that shampoo in Belgium or you want to sell it in Texas, the people on the ground can choose how they sell it, which is amazing for sales because for each market you kind of touch upon, okay, this is how you sell, run with it. That works really well. But then when you want to build a website, you kind of want to centralize it a little bit. A product page should be looking similar because the story of the brand needs to be told. People don't actually get that if they had like 20 years of doing their own thing in Germany. And now suddenly there's this centralized thing that wants to take away your website, make you pay for a new one with less features, but it's better to maintain. They didn't really care. Initially, L'Oreal reached out to me. It's like, do you want to work with us on the technical team that would come up with some sort of a factory for 
all of those brands to go on the same platform with the same technology and then reuse components, but give them all the same face or now a different face so that it looks good for that brand. So L'Oreal Paris has this look and then Garnier has that look and then Kerastas has that look. And I told the guy on the phone, you will never succeed. And then of course I didn't get hired, which is kind of fine. Because when I heard him, it's like, yeah, that's that's a fairy tale, isn't it? It would be amazing if you do that. And then two months later, Valtech called me and they said, yeah, we have this huge client who wants to do like a website factory. And it's like, oh, you mean L'Oreal? So do you want to come and work with us and be a tech lead in one of the teams to build the first website on this big program? Because this is like a 40 million euro program for five years to build all those websites and stuff. So basically when I said like, you know what, this is actually pretty interesting to do because now I get to not just manage people, if I had worked at L'Oreal, I would have managed people to say, you have to accept this website because we are building it now centrally. So you would constantly work with people that don't want that work because they have their own website that they like. Yeah, It's just not thingable, but they don't know, right? If you have PHP, you have Ruby on Rails, you have a .NET and you have a Java website, it's basically like a whole of money to keep that all alive. But then when I realized, you know what, I can actually work at the place that is the architect of this new thing. And then I thought, you know what, I really like this ad agency where I am now because I get to do stories for Nike and things like that, but I don't get the global platform kind of experience because I was always also interested in, you know, I want to try to lead teams or teach as, as really the teaching thing. That's yeah. also comes from being a nurse and being really um, sure. people's feelings and things like that, make people happy. And so I thought if I get to go to that program, I work with people from Bangladesh to New York, Amsterdam to anywhere. If you have a program like this, it's a global effort. And that really sparked something as like, you know what, I'm just going to try. So yeah. it wasn't really like a hell yeah, this is the thing. But it was like a very considered thought pattern. It's like, you know what, I'm going to try this. And now three years later, I'm still there. And I got quite quickly promoted to actually lead all the front end for all those brands, all the architecture. And then when our, in France, you have an, you have expertise directors. That's what they call it. Okay. And this guy left and then they didn't have an expertise director for all our other clients for front end. So they asked me, Tim, would you just step in and take care of our fires that have to be put out with front end projects? Wow. And I was like, you know what? I want to do the more management thing anyways. Let's just jump in and see what happens. And then I worked two jobs for a long time. What ended up happening then? Were you working the two or what went out between the two roles that you were working at the same moment? What I did is because I saw that basically the difference in culture was one of our biggest challenges to work together and how we would deal with one another. And so I focused a lot on how to manage people in this super complicated environment to become kind of happy in their job. And because they were happy, they had better output. And I did that for a while. And then I kind of made myself redundant. So I went into reactive mode, which is like, okay, there's a fire, I'll help you. But okay. the whole point of what I tried to do is to have people be responsible for their own jobs and try to have overview of what does everybody do in a project. Like if you understand right. what the QA person is doing and what the business analyst is doing, your actions will, if you know that they reflect on them, you can make the right decisions. And so I worked a lot on this and I made actually a framework I call Team First, which has a bunch of rules about this and how you deal with as a person yourself in a team, but also as a leader. Over time, 
that started to work because we kind of built like a little startup within Valtech doing all that L'Oreal work. And it became an engine that was really well oiled and organized. So I just slowly stepped out and then I hired this amazing guy to take the lead. And he just stepped in and did it because I managed to make myself redundant so much that other people were doing their jobs. Because in the beginning, imagine if you have to think about a software system that has to work with, let's say, 800 website instances, all have different different locales, crazy stuff. You're going to have your fingers in all the pies, right? From unit testing to design tools to how do you work? Because all those brands have different creative agencies. So you're going to have to make sure that all those agencies align and how do we... So you have to take the fingers out (laughs) and then you see... So I'll just took them out sometimes and see, okay, does it drop or not? And then you deal with it. Cool. Just seeing how it goes and hoping that nothing breaks totally, but being there if it is and ready to step back in. Very cool. Just lipstick, right? We make sure that we can release really often. So if there's a bug, you just fix it, you release again. Cool. So what would you say kept you from entering the tech industry before you did? Actually, nothing. It was just not on my radar. It's that simple. It wasn't interesting yet to you. Yeah. Yeah. You were pursuing other things. Yeah. So what I did do is like, I used to play a bit of video games when I was really young. And I did like, if I change this, that happens on the screen. This kind of fun stuff. Yeah. And nothing else because then I saw a guitar. And then the end, that was it. If you get the yeah. opportunity to be just enough to play live music, that's all I needed. I can get the energy to release whatever you want by being creative with your friends. Yeah. And then on stage, everything always goes wrong. And so it's kind of also a learning for public speaking that I do now quite a lot because you just smile people will not notice your mistakes that's so true that leads me to my next question which is how has your past being a musician and your training as a nurse help you today being the director of web development well i think the music part is just fun because then i have colleagues who play music too and then we become quick friends but the nursing you wouldn't expect it but it's it's the thing that i use most right now in my job really? what we had to learn in school there's two things let's start with the easiest one so imagine you are working in a hospital and you find out somebody has cancer mm-hmm. how do you speak to a person to give him such bad news there are a lot of techniques to understand someone how they might respond and based on their context so what we had to do in school to really look at a person like a person not a patient so we had to film ourselves every week at least an hour there was a video camera on me like how did i sit how did i yeah. say the thing did i take too long to say it how did i let them respond they kind of broke us down as to how do we speak how do we communicate and then build us back up and sure. that was such a valuable lesson because it lets you look at people of like how do they feel and especially now that i live in a country that's not the netherlands because in in amsterdam everybody's super direct what i say is what i mean if i look sad i'm sad but in france that's really not true people are super upset they might become very friendly or overly friendly and then there's this extra connotation of them being upset but if you don't have an eye for people if you don't really look at them you might not notice so i've learned those kind of things and then the other one that's a little bit more complex and i kind of use this on a daily basis they have kind of two kind of people and one person is much more on the person and the other is much more on the content and generally nurses are more content focused so you read the book argue the facts on what you read you will never say you are uh, an asshole you will read and you are an asshole because i read this someone on the side is more on the person and they will just say that and that's it and that's not good or bad it's just another side of the and basically i would read a book and 
do my test, get an A. And my friend would not really read, but infer from context and also got an A. And generally people who are nurses are the book reader type and doctors are the other side. What we learn is like, if you go to a doctor and you say, I need beam, 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 they will just not give it to you because you're not on their level. So we had learned to kind of sort of manipulate, ask about their day, about what they like, how they react to things. And if you're talking to someone and you're on the same level and you kind of like each other, then you go in with all your questions, you get everything you need. And this is very black and white because everybody is a little bit in between. But now I've learned CTOs of big companies are similar. They are hyper smart. They have a lot of experience. They already know my pitch 30 minutes before I start to give it. They will know this sure. just front end by coming in saying you need to use FUGS or whatever. Yeah. So you kind of need to go on their level and then actually feel what they need. I use that kind of manipulation thing all the time. That is basically my main skill now. Manipulation doesn't sound right because it's just people skills kind of. Persuasive or ability to influence a decision-making moment. But it's also like making people feel at ease with what we are building for them because they're going to pay us one million. Sure. And you're going to want to make sure that you show that you have the experience. You want to be strict and honest about it, but kind of understand them and get on their level. And then like in some meetings, I'm almost like a different person than in others, depending on how mature the client is. On what the client needs you to be, essentially. You're able to read that situation, assess it in the moment and know what version of yourself you need to show up as. Exactly. And then I fail half the time and the other half it works. And then suddenly we we are successful. Interesting. Very cool. Would you say that those skills that you acquired in that time in nursing, did they differentiate you from your coworkers who have maybe taken that more traditional route to tech? I think it definitely helped me. Um, And everybody comes from different places, right? Because if you need someone to write a super complicated algorithm, I could probably do that, but take a bit longer. I come at at it from a more human approach with each other and we'll figure it out. And because I have a lot of experience nowadays, I actually do it quite quickly. But I am not like someone who did computer science. So everybody has their own qualities and you need to put them together in a team to make that shine because we do need architects and we do need people that sell we also need people to be a scrum master so i don't think it differentiated me a lot i just have this need for creativity and solutions and mm. i always work it just doesn't stop but if i put that energy in the right place sometimes you're lucky right <laughs> well it sounds like you complement the teams that you're on well because you bring something different to the table then you help fill in the gaps in a way, which I'm sure companies have appreciated. Can you share any life lessons that you've learned from your transition to tech? Now that I've worked in tech for a long time, I've done different jobs, right? I was like just a junior developer, then I was a senior or architect, whatever. But I've also been delivery manager. And now I'm more back as developer, but more like just below a CTO role, let's say. So it's quite different. So I've had the whole span. And the one thing I've seen is that things take time. Just wait, do a good job take responsibility show what you do and then you wait because a lot of people want very quick results and i want to get this promotion i want to get money fast but actually if you do a good job people will see it and if they really don't see that you're not in the right place and also you of course you can ask for things but know that you have spent enough time before you ask so i think that's a, a pretty important one so earn what you're asking for don't expect it to yeah be. and just Exactly. And just wait for it. Because I know for myself, sometimes I want to go up fast, but then Mm -hmm. you know what? Maybe doing that one complicated project that takes a year 
you will get you so much further. And if you then ask, you just have it. So the patience is important because there's learning that happens along the way. Yes. Yeah. The other one is I see a lot of web developers that are actually a little bit frustrated. And this is kind of normal because when you get a bit more senior, you start to notice things, but you don't know how to solve them. This is kind of how that works sometimes. Like, why is this project manager doing this stuff? Or So I think a super important thing is to know yourself and understand what your motivation is. There's like a combination of purpose, um, having mastery and being able to choose what you do and actually have that work. Imagine you start Vue.js, you know, the open source tool. Yeah. And of course you have mastery. You can choose exactly what you code in it, but if nobody uses it, there's no purpose. And then you get upset a little bit. And if you transpile that to work situations, if you know yourself, if you know those three things and you can figure out where is it that I am not happy, then you can actually yeah. just fix it at that point. And so when I have a lot of developers uh, in my team who want to move up and they're frustrated, it's like, okay, just think about those things and what is lacking for you? Like, is it no motivation or is it yeah. mastery or is it no purpose? And if they know, they can solve it. And generally they just have to add, can I get that? And I'm like, oh, you thought about it. Sure, there you go. Sure. Well, it's taking time to think about where your motivation stems from, intrinsically, extrinsically, whatever it is, and yeah. investing time in that because then the job doesn't feel so much like a job anymore. It's based on whatever you're excited by. Sure. There you go. If you know this about yourself, that can really help. Yeah, self-reflection can be super helpful in that regard. Yeah, definitely. Tim, can you tell me about a time that you have felt like an outsider and maybe how you've dealt with those feelings? All the time. Really? Right now, I used to be more specialistic in front-end things, but now I'm more of a generalist. We have started a really big global program like L'Oreal, but for a new client that I cannot yet mention. And there they chose to go um, use Sitecore, which is a .NET CMS, a very big one. But they have this new thing, Sitecore Headless. So they want to go with the boom of all the headless CMSs, but they are essentially not a headless CMS, but they chose to go that way. And then they wanted us to use React and TypeScript. All good. Those things are very capable and great tools. I just never used them. I know React because I used it back in the day. I never really needed TypeScript. So now I have the overview of this global platform. I know what to do. I know the architecture. But if I want to fix the bug, I get like TypeScript typing issues because I don't know. So I feel like an outsider all the time now because we have these extreme specialists that are so good at React, but they cannot do what I'm doing. So I just have to step back and say, okay, my role is now going to be, you know what? I'm going to set up your CI environment and your unit testing stuff. Right. And that's going to be my role now, but I'm going to be an outsider to what you do, but I am your boss, which is kind of strange because I always used to be the developer who is also the lead and the boss. So I could step back into development to be able to code with the guys and the girls and then talk to a CTO. Now it's slow all moving out towards more the overview, more web development rather than front-end development, understanding cloud stuff. And that's another, actually, another one that I recently looked a lot into Jamstack, but also all the microservices around it. Nice. So I had to try to connect my Lambda functions to whatever, but I thought that would be easy. It's not easy. I was such an <laughs> outsider to basically the real cloud engineers. That is a specialty. Wow. So yes, I'm an outsider in every aspect that I touch. It's impossible not to be, right? There's always going to be something new. You can't be an expert in everything. And so to leave your ego at the door, yes, is difficult, but you're not trying to be the expert in it all. And that would get exhausting, I imagine. 
thing is, it also helps to leave your ego at the door because that's what I do all the time because I know I cannot be as good as the person who is in the trenches. Also, um, if we have success with a project, I'm not going to take up that, that success and say, hey, I did it because I am the lead. No, they did it. And if you show that over and over, they'll be happy with you. And you know what? If they have a bug at 10 p.m., I will help them fix it always because I'm still a coder, even if it's TypeScript. I'll figure it out. Yeah. And you're a part of the team too. You're not above that. Well, when you work at ad agencies, that's not always the case because the creative director may, would actually take that because he came up with the story, but he didn't build mm -hmm. it. And yeah. I saw that over and over. And where I work now, it's less of a creative agency, but more of like a platforming tech shop. It happens less and you see that so much more cohesion is really a good place to be. That's really neat. From the chat, Mary was commenting a bit ago saying that it's great advice that you provided. So giving ourselves permission to learn slowly and then screw up as we learn rather than asking upfront without trying to figure it out first is a huge part of mastering a topic rather than just knowing who to ask for the answer. That is so true. Exactly. And I think there is a balance there too, because I think sometimes if somebody's close to you that is actually really good at something, not at just the facts, but actually best practices on things, just ask as much as you can until you annoy them, then go away and actually figure it out. It's, there can be a balance, I think. Of course. Because I had it today. That was amazing. I was trying to figure out Fuse Storefront, which is actually a really cool PWA for frontends of e-commerce. And I didn't get something to work, but I know the CTO. So I texted him on Twitter, like, it doesn't work. And he's like, did you read the manual? It's like, no, dude. Oh, that's so funny. There's a balance. And I, I screwed it up. So that was a moment of asking questions too soon? Yes, of course. Got it. Yes, we talk about that on the show all the time. The art of when to ask a question is a skill that needs to be learned, but also you have to practice getting it wrong to learn when. Yeah, and I think super important here is something I call as a lead, something called helicopter view, which kind of means if, if you have overview of a situation, it's very easy to challenge it and to ask the right question sure because you're zoomed out yeah because what i see all the time you have this product owner from let's say some company that comes up with a feature that as a developer you're like but why why do yeah. you do it but if you understand where he or she comes from as a product owner for a specific brand understanding the the business need maybe they have mm -hmm. a really complicated cms so it has to be that way if you understand right. that very easy to challenge it or not to challenge it and therefore have a better discourse with someone. So having that overview gives you also the calm to think of your question. What is the right question here? Yeah, absolutely true. And then Mary says, knowing who to ask so that you'll get not only the answer to your question, but the context that helps you understand better the next time is important as well. It takes talent for the person giving the answers to be able to find that right balance of explanation. 100%. I mean, it's so easy to just say, here, let me just do it for you, right? And there's an art in teaching and getting the person to understand the concept and leading them to the answer so that there's a discovery moment there. Yeah, this is one of my challenges because you know what? Generally, me, my brain is fast. Doesn't mean it's smart, but it's fast. And I rely on my experience of, a, of many years to actually do something quickly, but mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that everybody has that. Some people are slower- yeah but they are way smarter and way more considerate. Sometimes teaching for me, it's like, I understand how to explain. I can go apples and origins if needed, or like to explain not too technically. But sometimes it takes too long for my brain for them to get it. And I just do too much for them and then give it back. And mm -hmm. while I do this, I realize it. I'm like, oops, 
And then I'll just try to explain really well what I did so they learn from it, but they didn't do it themselves. So that's definitely a learning point for me to let people just, you know, you win and lose on your own. So on other sides, what I do is just, if you are doing a demo of your project, I will put the most junior person in front of the client directly. Because if they win, they did a good presentation, it's great for them. If they fail, hopefully the client is mature enough to try to explain why it wasn't correct. Or I help out, of course. But if you do that, you you feel so much more responsible of your own job. And as a lead, you have much less work. And you can focus on the things that really matter, like teaching maybe. Yeah, so much learning comes from teaching something anyway. And so it's a way to break something down and to make sure that you take your time through something as well. In the chat, the worst part are the people that tell you, you will never learn that because they can't explain the way that you could choose to resolve your problem. That's very true. It puts the onus on you for not being able to learn it, which is really frustrating. Yeah, I've been lucky that I didn't really get people that do that to me. I've been lucky to have people that were actually so experienced, they were able to explain it. But I've noticed now that a lot of people don't just Google or Stack Overflow something. You can also still do that. Mm -hmm. And when you work in a global company like mine, it's staggering to see that If you have a team of 10 people in Paris and 10 in New York, the people in Paris will still stick to the people in Paris and in New York. They still stick to the people in New York and they don't ask each other, even though they they could help a lot. So people stay within themselves in their own group and... It's also important just to reach out. Yeah, well, that's the siloing that can happen on remote teams. And we're oh, really yes. feeling that now, right? With everyone working from home, those that are still working are having to do so in their home offices and they're losing that water cooler uh, interactions that may be problem solving that may occur when you're collaboratively working together. My team is fully remote always. And so we constantly are talking about how can we have those organic conversations or learn from each other when we're so far away from one another. It's an interesting problem. I think if you're used to it, it's kind of okay. Like where I work now, for example, for that L'Oreal program, everything was always like that because we had people from all over the world in in the teams. Yep. So I've had to just learn that the hard way and go with it. Um, the hardest bit is still the, the cultural difference. Ah, uh, sure. Because people have different expectations for when you say something. And like I have some examples where me as a Dutch person, we are the most direct in the world. What we focus on is the feelings of the heart and the facts are a little bit outside of each other. They're not super connected. So when we say things, it's all just straight facts. Plus, we really like transparency. If we are doing a phone call and we figure something out, in the end, we will always paraphrase what we said. And then we will still send an email with action points. So that's the that's the one side. But then now I live in France where people are much more Southern, let's say. They are much less direct. There's a much more buffer in between. But also there's a difference between low context and high context. Dutch people are low context. It's very easy to understand what I mean when I say it. But when you go more higher context, there's much more around it that you have to assume to understand what somebody means, which is also like if I then give that paraphrasing of whatever we just discussed to them on the phone, they'll be like, oh, so you don't trust me then? Because I already understood from when you said it the first time. And then I send an email. They're like, really, dude? Are you now going to also send me an email? Well, I already understood what I had to do. Those are things we don't have to discuss. And for me, I pride myself on doing it. And man, I had so many mistakes like that. Wow. It takes time to learn that and observe that you're having conflict or micro conflict moments. And then to step back and say, okay, what happened just now? People are feeling triggered or whatever it is that I'm, something's getting lost in this communication moment. And then a Dutch person would say, oh, you are triggered. I'm so sorry. And then a French person is like, or someone from the UK, when you are so direct that you actually notice somebody is triggered and you say that, that's even worse. Oh, 
That's good to know. So you cannot just pinpoint that. You're speaking to me right now. Some light bulbs are happening for sure. That's really interesting. The thing that I alluded to earlier, that team first framework that I spoke yeah. about, a big part of that is actually how do we deal with things together as a team, which is these big cultural differences here. So I'm now looking at uh, the chat and they're coming up with the culture map. And that's exactly the best. That's honestly, that's the best book you could buy ever for your career if you work with international teams. Oh, awesome. Aaron, good shout. Thank you. Basically, I use that a lot and I, I give it to everyone who wants to read it. That's funny. I think he's been trying to get me to read that. I promise I will. It sounds like it's really helped you, especially in this agency work when preparing for your pitch, knowing who your audience is. And I think that that is advice that translates across a lot of different industries as well. I write a lot of tutorials on how people can build code. And if I know who I'm writing for and know who my audience is, I'm going to be able to speak to them in the tone that I hope that will want to be reading it in. Things kind of connect better, hopefully. But it doesn't always have to be in a pitch. It can also be with your colleagues. I've had it before where I pointed out a spelling mistake in somebody's deck or somebody's mm. design and they would cry. And I didn't understand why. I think there's there's a moment there too of like spend time knowing your teammates also. And I think knowing one another is so important because recently someone gave me some feedback saying after the phone call, wow, you're very confident on that call. It's like, okay, thank you. It was not positive at all. It was like, oh, this is a French way to give feedback as in you spoke over me too much. You didn't oh. let me finish. You felt like a know-it-all. But he said to me with a smile, like, you're so confident. And I'm like, oh, okay, let me just slowly digest this. And now that I think back, there have been more of those where a client needs, says, we need to be more efficient. So my Danish mm -hmm. colleague is like, okay, I'm 99% there. Goes through as a, like a, a train on steam. Next thing, actually what I was saying, how dare you show me those prices? So wow. really understand this high context, how people are. Ooh, okay, so we all have homework. We're all oh, yes. to go feed the culture map this evening. <laughs> okay, will do. Let's transition then. Do you have any advice for those that are wanting to transition into tech that you could share? Well, it seems daunting to look at tech. And also, I just listened to your previous episode where Brian also said that technology seems to be connected to business, right? And so it seems like this big black box where people cannot just start, but they can. You can just do something. And you know, what's interesting is like my wife is started her own company selling some clothes online and she needed a website. So she built her own Shopify e-commerce. Oh, cool. And then now she's doing CSS and she's going to do HTML and she's going to make her own theme. And I'm like, she just transitioned into tech through kind of a hobby, something fun and that's the way to go that's how i started too and so the bar is not that high to be honest but it seems high what we're doing now at work is something called tech girl so we teach a group of girls from the ages 9 to let's say 12 um, web development so we give them like a one-day course and you can see the the shimmer in their eye when they actually did something when they built an HTML page yeah. with like a cute cat on it. And yeah. then suddenly they see what they built in this thing that they see every day as a normal browser that just consumes things. Now you produced for that thing. And yeah. then we interview them after always. And in their cute French voices, they always say, this is something that I only thought boys could do, but I can uh. do it too. And we're going to do one next week where we're going to do it all online. So it's going to be pretty challenging. You know what? If they can do it, they can probably just as easily do it as anyone else. Absolutely. So 
advice is just do it. You know what? There's a lot of YouTubers out there that do really good beginner courses. Definitely. And I am the opposite because I'm in this crazy place where everything is complex. So I talk about the complexities on my YouTube channel, but that, yeah. that's not that is actually um, for them. But like, for example, like you, what you're doing, like also how to begin Mm-hmm. And how people want to learn, that's so important. And mm-hmm. well, you you were a teacher before, so you're probably much better at that than me. It's really cool that you're doing that. I think that's awesome. And I think taking time during all of this to help teach a hobby and encourage that shimmer in their eye moment of, oh my gosh, I just made that. Yeah. That is an incredible feeling. I'll send you the link. So for the show notes, because okay. when you see that, if you have kids, you want, you want them to yes. do that amazing it's so much fun so that's my next question is to make your shout out what would you like in listeners to go check out that tech girl event that we're doing with Faltech, we're doing it globally yeah okay i think that's actually a good one so i'll give you those links okay we have our i think she's called a vc because in the u.s you have all these fancy titles and she is always the only woman in conference room so she felt mm-hmm. like she had each girls about code and that's how that all started so that's a really cool one and then maybe one other which is, I never thought I would do this, but I started YouTube. And I'm not here to work me, watch me. No, that's not it. What I'm doing is actually, I'm doing interviews with people in our community, like you are yeah. doing with me now. And it's kind of similar. We're in the same field, but we're not overlapping. Yeah. I managed to get really cool people with nice stories to talk about tips and tricks kind of we try to distill why they are so good at social media or so good at promoting themselves because all their twitter feeds are pure gold and their conferences are great but you get there through failure through trying through whatever crazy audio setups that we just did stuff like that (laughs) and um, i'm lucky enough that i'm in the community enough that cool people talk to me that have these great stories so maybe that would be interesting not just for me as a youtuber but actually watch it for the people i interview because they have a lot to say so that would be my my last plug i think awesome tell us tim where can people find you online so you can find me at timbenix.nl yes i still have a dutch domain name for some reason i never updated it and you can find me at timbenix at twitter also and the same at youtube so it's all just my name. It's nice and simple. Perfect. Well, thank you, Tim, for going live with me and experimenting on Twitch. It was so incredible. Thank you, everyone, for participating in the chat today and allowing that conversation and dialogue to occur in itself. So I greatly appreciate it. And yes, Tim, you were an incredible first guest for this. So I thank you again. And I suppose this is where we will say goodbye. Thanks. All right. Bye, everyone. And that's a wrap on another episode of We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. Be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you can find podcasts and check us out next week for another story and lessons learned from an unconventional path to tech.